The following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. And, uh, this morning we're going to be in Luke 7. I, uh, we, we just finished uh, Romans 6 last Sunday, and uh, then next Sunday uh, James uh, Tilson's going to be speaking. So that was a good time to uh, to pause from our series and uh, to revisit our theme for the year, uh, re- transforming faith. So it's not up there right now, uh, but but hopefully you recall that uh, that that's our theme for the year. And so uh, what we want to do this year is is focus on building great faith that transforms all of life. So we don't want to be practical atheists, right? Who who say we believe in God. But when you look at our lives, it doesn't make any practical difference. No, we want to be people who really believe that a good and wise God rules over everything. And we want to be people who believe that to the extent that it changes how we pray. It changes how we see the world. And it changes the choices that we make. We want to have a faith that makes a radical difference in how we live our lives. And so this morning, I want to consider a, a powerful example of this sort of transforming faith. And, um, and so we're going to read here Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. It says there, when he had, speaking of Jesus, had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion slave, who was highly regarded by him, was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to this one, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him, and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. I love love this story, and I love, in particular, the simple confidence of the centurion. It's so encouraging, and, and it's also very challenging to, to look at his example. And, and so today, I just want to walk through this story. I don't, have a, I don't really have much of an outline, a very complex outline, but we're just going to walk through the story this morning, and, and then at the end, I'll, I'll pull it all together into a few conclusions and, and applications. But, but as we move towards, that, towards the end of the sermon today, I hope you will think with me. I hope you always think with me. But, but today, I want you in particular to, to, to think with me, and specifically, the climax of this story is verse 9, 
where, where, the, where Jesus says that he has not seen such great faith in Israel. So I want you to ask yourself, I want you to answer the question, what made the centurion's faith great? What made his faith great? What is it about this man that is so incredible? And how should I imitate his example? And maybe you might even write down your answer as we go. So that said, we're going to jump into the story today. And verses 1 and 2 introduce us to the two main characters in the story, Jesus and the centurion. Now, now verse 1 tells us that Jesus has just finished a discourse, which, which is recorded for us uh, uh, previously in Luke, and, and we typically call that the Sermon on the Plain. And, um, and, and most likely, uh, it's the same event that's recorded for us in Matthew 5-7, through 7, uh, where we know it in Matthew as the Sermon on the Mount. So, so just before this story takes place, Jesus has finished one of the most significant moments in his ministry. He has preached a very consequential sermon to a large crowd of people. And now, Jesus is traveling home to Capernaum. And Capernaum was the home base of his, of his ministry in Galilee. So, so he's headed home, and you can imagine that Jesus is tired. He's worn out. He's looking forward to getting some rest. But of course, Jesus had a hard time getting away. So verse 9 tells us that even as he's traveling along, he's got a whole entourage of people who are following him. There's a crowd, and I'm sure that they weren't super sensitive to Jesus' exhaustion. They're probably peppering him with all sorts of questions and talking to him about this and that. And so that's Jesus. And then verse 2 introduces us to the centurion. Now, now I think we probably know that centurions got their name from the fact that they were uh, over uh, typically around a hundred soldiers. That's why they were called centurions. And they were very important people. And generally, the centurions were very well paid for their service in the Roman military. And just to give you an idea of that, a typical, um, well, well, a low-ranking Roman soldier would make maybe only about 75 denarii, that was their currency, around 75 denarii a year, whereas a centurion would make anywhere from 3,700 to 7,500 denarii a year. So we're talking about massive, a massive difference in, in earnings. So this centurion, he's a big deal. And it's probably fair to assume that he probably had the biggest, most luxurious home in the whole town of Capernaum. So he's a big deal. But of course, the Jews... They did not typically like centurions, right? They were despised by the Jews because, for one, they're Gentiles. This man is not a Jew. And they also were symbols of, of Roman oppression. And he was getting rich off of what? The taxation of the Jewish people. So the Jews would have never picked a Roman centurion to be the recipient of Jesus' compassion. But as Jesus so often does... He surprises us with whom he chooses to be the recipient of his kindness. And we know that that is an emphasis of the passage because Luke follows this account in verses 11 through 17 by telling about another surprising miracle that Jesus raises the son of a destitute widow who is desperate and poor. And then a little later in the chapter, in verses 36 through 39, uh, he, he shows compassion towards 
a woman who was a known uh, shameful sinner. And so three times in this chapter, Jesus reaches out to people that the Jews would not have typically picked as the focus of Jesus' compassion. So, so as we come to this story, there is a lot of irony built into the story. So on the one hand, you have a mighty centurion, a mighty Roman centurion. And, and he's someone that, that you would never expect to pursue a Jewish prophet. And on the other hand, you would never expect Jew, uh, the Jew, the Israel's Messiah, Israel's Messiah, to chase after a Roman centurion, a Roman oppressor. And so if you're uh, just a Jew reading the story in the first century world, you're probably wondering, how in the world are these two guys going to have any sort of productive meeting in this story? But that said, so return to the story. The story begins with, with Jesus. He's walking home to Capernaum. And ahead of him, there in Capernaum, is this centurion at his home. And, and verse 2 tells us, that one of his servants is very sick. And the parallel account in, in Matthew chapter 8 tells us that, that specifically he was paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Now, we don't know exactly what was wrong with this guy, how he became paralyzed, if it was some sort of illness or major injury. But this guy is, is in bad shape. I mean, Matthew tells us he is tormented with whatever is going on in his body. So you can imagine this guy is, is probably you know, moaning and groaning. He's in excruciating pain. He's making all sorts of noise. And of course, he's moving very obviously towards an agonizing death. And the centurion is deeply troubled. He is hurting over the condition of this slave. Now, that's another surprising twist in the story, because this is a wealthy centurion. And, and slaves, you know, for, for a guy like this, would, would typically just be viewed as a piece of property. And so, you know, you lose one slave and you go buy another and it's no big deal at all. But, but this centurion is different. And, and he sees this, this slave as someone of value. In fact, when he actually references the slave himself later in the chapter, he uses a, a different word than the normal Greek word for slave, doulos. He, he calls him uh, a paidos. And so, you know, and, and so it, it's a, uh, he, he's, he, he sees this man, he values this man differently. So, so this is not your typical gruff, arrogant, cruel Roman centurion. And any first century reader that would have received the book of Luke would have been paying attention. Who is this guy? And why does he seem so different from a typical high-ranking soldier? So, so he is distraught about the looming death of his slave, but, but somehow he, he's there in his home, and, and so he's got this guy who's really sick, and, and somehow he hears that Jesus is on his way into Capernaum. Now again, these, these towns, these, these first century towns, they're not, they're not massive places, all right? And this centurion lives in Capernaum, and Capernaum is the home base of Jesus' Galilean ministry. So, so I'm sure that this centurion had, had bumped into Christ. He had probably heard plenty about Jesus uh, throughout his time in, in, in the city of Capernaum. He'd heard about the miracles. Maybe he had seen some of them himself. He'd probably heard Jesus teach a time or two. 
But, but this centurion, he didn't write it all off as just a bunch of religious fanaticism, like probably most of the Romans would have done. No. He believed that Jesus possessed the sovereign power of God. And therefore, he also believed that his servant's paralysis or whatever was going on was no match for the mighty power of Jesus. So, so he believes that, that this Jesus can heal his slave. And, and you can imagine the, the, the thoughts going through his mind. It's like, man, Jesus is coming. Jesus could heal my slave. And he wants to go to Jesus. He wants to ask Jesus to heal his slave. But there's a big problem. Verse 7 tells us that this centurion, he thinks he is unworthy to go see Jesus himself. He has such deep reverence for Jesus that he said, it says, verse 7 says, he did not consider himself worthy to come to Jesus. Now, I want to be clear that Jesus did not demand that response from this man, right? Because throughout the Gospels, Jesus does not only go to the high and mighty, right? I mean, he, he oftentimes is chasing after the most shameful sinners, trying to reach them and pursue them. And, and as well, Hebrews 4 verse 16 tells, it, it commands those of us who are in Christ to come boldly to the throne of grace. So, so God is not, you know, this like, arrogant, snotty, you know, being who, who sees everyone as, who is under him as unworthy, stay away, get out of my business, don't bother me. Jesus wants us to come. And Jesus would have gladly received this centurion had he come to him himself. But I do think that while this guy, you know, doesn't apply the truth of who Jesus is quite correctly, as well, though, we ought to recognize that, that his reverence for Christ is a welcome contrast to the flippant attitude that so many people have before God. I mean, so many people, they, they come before God boldly, but, but not because they're resting in the grace of Christ, but because they think too much of themselves. Jesus should be so glad that I want to talk to him. Isn't that how so many people think? But we must remember that, that Christ is compassionate, but he is also the sovereign judge of all the earth. And so the centurion's faith enables him to see a glory in Christ, which demanded reverence and fear. So, so he doesn't feel worthy to go see Jesus himself. But, but he still wants to help his servant. So, so, so rather than going to himself, he, he instead hurries off and apparently, he finds several Jewish elders who are there in the town of Capernaum. And he asks them if they would please go to Jesus and ask him to come to his home and heal his servant. Now, now why does he pick these Jewish elders? Well, well, probably he assumed that because, of course, he's a Gentile. They're Jews. So, so he assumes that because they're Jews, they would be worthy to go and approach Jesus. And, and then... In another surprising twist, he goes to these guys, and, and these, these Jewish elders are not resistant to, to going. I mean, remember, the Jews typically despise centurions, but, but these people, this, they agree to go out and appeal to Jesus. And, and when you look at the text, notice you know, that it's not like, you know, have you ever asked your kids to do stuff? And uh, 
Well, even, you know, wives ask your husbands to do stuff and, and we kind of limp around and, oh, I got to do this because I have to. No. I mean, notice how they go to Jesus in verses 4 and 5. It says, when they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, he is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. So, so they want to help this guy. They're motivated. I mean, they come to Jesus, and it says there that they earnestly implore him. Now, now of course, they sound more like Washington lobbyists than they do like people who understand the heart of Jesus, right? Because... You know, they go to him, basically, they're like, you know, Jesus, this guy, he took care of us, you know, so you got to make sure that you scratch his back over here, all right? And, and they don't quite understand Jesus, but, but you can appreciate their, their, their zeal, their desire to help this centurion. And, um, and so they're thankful, you know, and I mean, you can get that, right? Like, like, I'd be elated if someone came to me and handed me a blank check and said, you know, here's a blank check. LifePoint can build whatever buildings you need. You know, so, so these guys are thankful for this centurion building them a synagogue. But as well, it's not just that this guy has bought the favor of the Jews. It also says there in the text that he loves our nation. Now, now we don't know exactly what that means if he had become a full Jewish proselyte or something to that effect, but, but he clearly has some sort of regard for the Jews that wouldn't have been normal for a snotty Roman centurion. So, so this is no ordinary man. So, so these guys, they, they go to Jesus and they make their appeal and they're waiting for Jesus to reply. And again, we have to remember that Jesus is probably tired. He's probably excited to go home and rest and as well, the Gentiles were not typically Jesus' first priority in ministry. Now, there was always more ministry to do than there was time to do it. And yet Jesus had a compassionate heart. And so he agrees to help and begins a detour away from where he was originally headed towards this centurion's home. And I hope that, that no matter how many times you read about Jesus' miracles that you never lose sight of just how amazing the compassion of our Savior is. He is a compassionate God. And He cares about all people from, from a lowly Gentile slave, like was in the centurion's house, to a desperate widow, to a lady who had committed all sorts of shameful, terrible sins. And He also has time for every burden and care on your heart. God is never too busy to listen to you. He's never disinterested or distracted. So you can go to him. You can talk to him about whatever's on your heart. And you can know that he hears and he cares. Well, returning to the story, Jesus is, is pressing toward the centurion's home. And, and if you've, you've read through the Gospels, you, you know how this works. You're expecting, well, he's going to go to the guy's house and He's going to heal this guy and everything's going to be great, just like Jesus always does. But there's another really surprising twist in the story. So, so apparently, you know, Jesus agrees to go and then someone takes off running and he runs to the centurion's house and, and, and he runs in the door. You can imagine the guy, he bursts in the door and he says, hey, Jesus is coming. 
Now, we have to remember, that's exactly what the centurion asked for, right? He wanted Jesus to come and heal his slave. And, and so you can imagine there's, there's probably multiple people in the house, and, and, and all of a sudden there's this great excitement in the house. Man, Jesus is coming to our house. Jesus. And, and not only that, he's going to heal the servant. And, and so there's this buzz in the house about Jesus coming over. But the centurion, he's got a conflict in his heart. Because while everyone else is excited, all of a sudden, he has this overwhelming sense of unworthiness. And his mind begins to spin. And, and so you can imagine he's thinking, you know, what have I done? What have I done inviting Jesus into my Gentile home? And, and, and he, he's so busy, he doesn't have time for me. I, I'm just a humble Gentile sinner. I'm not worthy to have Jesus come into my house. And so he begins to express that. And you know, everyone's excited. The centurion's like, man, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if Jesus should come over here. I mean, we're, we're Gentiles. And he's busy. And, and you can imagine, you know, maybe the centurion's wife or one of his other servants, and they're looking at him and like, are you nuts? I mean, are you nuts? You're a Roman centurion. You're as important as it gets. And why are you intimidated by some Jewish prophet? And yet his faith transformed his perspective. And it gave him a grand vision of Jesus' glory and his unworthiness. And so he is so overwhelmed and he is so, uh, so strong in his conviction that Jesus should not come into his house that he grabs a couple of friends and says, Hey guys, this is what I need you to do. I need you to go out to Jesus. And I need you to deliver her message. And specifically, I need you to tell him not to come to my house. Now, those friends, imagine what they're thinking. They're thinking, you're nuts. What's wrong with you? You're a centurion. Go speak to this Jew yourself. And, and Jesus is almost here, right? So he clearly does not have a problem coming over. So if he doesn't have a problem coming over, then why do you need to tell him not to come? And then, you know, Joe is in the room next door, and he's dying. We need Jesus now. And I think with that, it's worth noting, you know, that, that ancient peoples were, were much more open to miracles than people are today. You know, probably most of the people in the house believed in divine intervention and miraculous healings and things of that nature. But it was also generally assumed in the ancient world that the miracle worker had to be physically present for a miracle to take place. You, know, you had to walk in, there were rituals that you followed, and so you had to see the person, touch the person, pray over the person, in order for the healing to take place. So, so in their minds, telling Jesus not to come was the equivalent of saying, don't heal the slave. And so it's devastating to them. They can't believe what they're hearing. And yet, whoever these friends are, you know, you imagine they shake their heads. Man, you know, centurion friend here, he's crazy. But we're going to do what he says. And so they take off on their way to speak to Jesus. And, and the text tells us, verse 6 tells us, that they intercepted Jesus and his entourage when they were almost to the house. And they deliver the centurion's remarkable message. And so let's pick up, uh, verse 6 says again, Now they started, he st Jesus started on his way, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, 
Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. So these guys go out, and they say, Jesus, we have a message from the centurion, and they repeat these words. They, they reiterate what the centurion had told them to say to Jesus, and everyone who's standing there is stunned by what this guy is communicating to Christ, and especially by his incredible confidence in the Savior. I mean, they, they're like, wow, that is amazing faith. And so to go back to my introduction, we need to ask ourselves, what made the centurion's faith so great? And what is it that is so amazing about what this centurion once communicated to Christ? I think there's three things. There's three things that stand out to me about this centurion's faith. And the first is, is that the foundation of this confession is the fact that the centurion had a big view of God. He had a big view of God. And that's so clear, isn't it? I mean, he had seen the miracles of Jesus. And he understood. I mean, he maybe had watched Jesus heal some guy or do this thing over here. And, and he had seen all those things in the town of Capernaum. And he knew that only sovereign power could do that. You know, there's all sorts of you know, people out there that you know, come up with counterfeit miracles and you know, create things that aren't really true. But this centurion knew that, that Jesus had real power. And, and he probably didn't have our refined theology of God that, that we have in our, our, our textbooks and so forth. But he could recognize power when he saw it. And he knew that Jesus had divine power. And so this centurion, he has maybe a simple but ultimately a massive view of the power and the glory of Jesus. And I want to emphasize that that's where all great faith begins. Now, so often, our culture makes faith all about me. You know, just believe. And so faith, to so many people in our, in our culture, is an irrational feeling that I drum up in myself. You know, I hope against hope. And so to, to many people in our world, you know, you, you know, they'll say I'm a person of faith. And, and what they mean by that is, is essentially that, you know, you can drum up a reality. You know, if you just have enough faith, you can create a reality that doesn't actually exist. It's all about me and my will and my power. But biblical faith is never about me. It's about God. And we need to understand that the object of our faith matters far more than the conviction in our hearts. It's the object of our faith that matters. So God's power is what changes things, not my faith. You can't manipulate God. You can't create a reality that God has to get forced into. No, it is God that works. And so... You know, here in a couple of weeks, I'm planning to start up a, a Sunday evening series, and we're going to talk about 
how we can build transforming faith. And we're not going to talk about us. We're going to talk about God and about fearing God. Because that's how you build faith. Great faith comes from knowing a great God. And so if you want to strengthen your faith, don't look to yourself. Look to God. Meditate on Him. And so this man has a a view of God that, that creates a great faith in his heart. Secondly, what stands out is because the centurion had such a big view of God, he had a small view of himself, right? It's so evident in the story, and it's emphasized by Luke, that, that his thought is, who am I? Who am I that the Son of God would visit my house? And who am I that I would even go to Jesus and talk to him face to face? It's an incredible attitude, isn't it? Again, coming from someone who was a powerful man, who was used to being in charge. And and now again, the point is not that we should be so humble that we hide from God, right? No, God wants us to come to him. And Jesus is compassionate. He loves sinners. And time and time again, he urges us to come. But it's also good for us to always remember that we only come to God through the blood of Christ. And so great faith does include great confidence in the blood of Christ that makes us worthy to come. But but great faith does not produce a sense of entitlement. Where I think, God really ought to listen to me. And God really ought to do what I want Him to do. No. Great faith has the opposite effect. When Isaiah saw God, he said, woe is me. And in Revelation chapter 1, when, when, when John saw Jesus in his glory, it says that he fell like a dead man when he saw the glory of God. And so great faith sees the transcendent glory of God and it always responds with reverence, awe, and humility. And third, the centurion's faith also created a small view of his problems. So he had a big view of God, a small view of himself, and a small view of his problems. Now, I think that's really instructive because we generally think that my problems are huge, right? Like, like we have got a problem in our life and the sky is falling, the world is coming to an end, and my problem is the only thing that matters. Ah! Right? Like, that's how we react. But, but the centurion's big view of God transformed how he even saw something like terminal illness. I mean, think about terminal illness. I mean, does does it get any worse than that? And yet, yet his response, his, his, his perspective on it is drastically different than ours typically would be. And I think the best part of this story is the cool, calm logic of verses 7 and 8, right? That there's no panic in this centurion's words. I mean, he understands that that even a terminal illness is nothing compared to the sovereign might of God. And so, Jesus doesn't need to come to his house. If Jesus' word created the universe, well, then Jesus' word can deal with this little illness without any problem at all. And and so, and, and why is he so sure? Well, again, he, he says that he was a soldier. 
And because he's a soldier, he understands the chain of command. And so he understands, first of all, what it means to be under authority. So when Caesar spoke, this centurion didn't hem and haw. He did what Caesar said without question. He understands that. And he also understands what it means to exercise authority because he was an authority himself. And so when he spoke, his soldiers obeyed without question. And that's quite simple, right? Those of you who have been in the military, you understand that. There's a simple, it's a, there's a simplicity to obedience, to, to chain of command, authority structure that this centurion understands. And therefore, he also understood that terminal illness was just another, another subject to the divine authority structure. Yeah, and, and that's good for us to remember too. That, that illness, suffering, other trials that we may face, they are not rogue enemies of the divine authority of God. No, they are subject to, to God's command. And so this centurion understands, if Jesus commands this illness to depart, it doesn't matter how strong that illness may be, it is gone because of the authority and the power of Jesus. It must immediately obey. So how do you see the challenges in your life? I certainly don't want to minimize whatever trials or fears you may be facing today, because I'm sure that they are very real. And life in a sin-cursed world is oftentimes painful and very scary. And God cares about your sorrows, and God cares about your challenges, and, and Hebrews tells us that Jesus sympathizes with every challenge we face. But, but as, as big as they might be in your world, Understand that no challenge in your life is bigger than divine sovereignty. And if God commands them to flee, they must obey. There is nothing they can do to resist him. And if they remain, it must be because God in his perfect knowledge and love knows that what is ultimately best is for those things to remain. So Christian, you need to learn by God's grace to see all of life through the lens of faith. You need to have a big view of God, that you see him as the sovereign authority of all things. And that needs to drive you to have a small view of yourself and then a small view of your problems in comparison to the sovereignty of God. Well, the friends, they deliver their message to Jesus and Jesus stopped. Notice again verses 9 and 10. It says, Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. Now when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Now, now just imagine having the Son of God marvel at your faith. That's an incredible statement, an incredible statement. And it's a very human picture of Jesus. Now, of course, God cannot be surprised, but, but as a man, Jesus is amazed, he is stunned, he is in awe of this man's trust in the Lord. 
And, and, that's, and, and it does stand out because, because this Jesus is only said to marvel in one other instance in the Gospels. And that time, he marvels over people's sin, how, how terrible they are. So this is the only time in the Gospels that we are told that Jesus marveled at a positive quality in an individual. It's a strong statement. And so when Jesus, so Jesus hears the report from these friends, and then he seems to have turned to the crowd behind him, and he's clearly moved by, by the centurion's testimony, he says, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. Now, now Matthew's record uh, Matthew's record of this story includes a longer condemnation of Israel that, that follows that statement. But Luke, he, he leaves out the condemnation of Israel because, I mean, Matthew primarily wrote to Jews and Luke primarily wrote to Gentiles. And so that's not Luke's concern. He's not so much concerned about the condition of Israel and their lack of faith. No, instead, he wants us to simply focus on the faith of this centurion. And I agree with one of the commentators I read this week who says, that the climax then of this story is not the miracle that happens in verse 10. The climax of the story is, is, is the faith of this centurion and Jesus' commendation of it in verse 9. So the primary theme of the story is the centurion's faith, not the miracle or the power that Jesus is going to exhibit. And what a blessing it is to consider the fact then that great faith pleases the Lord. And obviously, I, I want to be careful to, to honor the Lord appropriately in saying this. But what God is teaching us here is that God notices great faith. It pleases him, and he smiles upon it. Now, you will never impress God with how smart you are, how talented you are, how much money you have, any of those things. Because God doesn't need those things. But God notices simple faith. He sees when you trust him. And it pleases him. When, when you take radical steps of obedience. Or make radical sacrifices for his purposes. Because you really believe. What this book says about who God is. And so Jesus is pleased. And, and he honors it. And, and again, then the climax of the story is verse 9. And so what's, what's fascinating is that verse 10 concludes the story in an incredibly short manner. So, so the centurion had asked Jesus to just say the word and my servant will be healed. And Luke does not even record Jesus speaking the word. Right? He doesn't even record the healing of the slave. No. Verse 10 just quickly wraps up the story by saying, when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. They go home, and he's all better. And, and so, so Jesus said the word, and the word is recorded in Matthew's account. He said the word, and the servant was healed. The illness obeyed the master's voice. It wasn't too big for Jesus. And Jesus didn't even need to visit. God's word commands all creation. And this miracle is another testimony to the sovereign power of Jesus. So I began by asking what made the centurion's faith great. 
And the answer is simply that great faith transforms how I see God, how I see myself, and how I see my problems. So, so how do you imitate the centurion's example? I'd like to, like to wrap this all up with three applications, three challenges for us. First of all, you need to believe that God is worthy of this kind of faith. Believe that God is worthy of this kind of faith. And once again, I I always want to emphasize that great faith begins with God, not with me. So so I want to emphasize that that God is worthy of your confidence. And folks, this story really happened. This is not just a cool tale. This is not some tall story. No, this happened. Jesus gave the command. Illness fled and health immediately returned. And so we need to hear, read this story and understand that God's command also reigns over every other challenge in this universe. Now, now, yes, it's not always God's will to take away your problems like he did for this centurion in this story. Just because you have great faith does not mean that God will fix your problems or that if you have problems, it's because you don't have the faith of the centurion. God's purposes are always bigger than we can even comprehend. But, but please don't ever think that your problems are bigger than the sovereign authority of Jesus. His authority stands over all. And it is very important that we see him that way. So believe that God is worthy. Second challenge, aspire to transforming faith. Aspire to transforming faith. You know, we should all pray as we, as we read a story like this, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Jesus said the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And the reality is that sometimes it is very difficult for us to see the glory of God through the fog of fleshly desires. That the pull of the world and Satan's deception. So don't despair that walking by faith doesn't seem as simple for you as it was for this guy. There's some of us, you you might read a story like this and all you do is, Hang your head. Man, I, I don't have the faith of that centurion. I never will. And Oh man, I'm never going to be like that. You know, but, but don't resign yourself to weak faith. Because if you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit lives inside you. And the Bible teaches that one of the primary ministries of the indwelling spirit is to strengthen the faith of God's people. So ask him for help. And then read the Bible and meditate on the Bible because the primary way that the Holy Spirit builds faith and changes our heart is through through illuminating the Scriptures and creating faith and understanding in what they have to say. And so as you live in your knees, as you live in the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit will grow your faith. And and you and every one of us should aspire to the type of faith that we, the simple confidence that we see in this centurion. And then a third challenge would be practice transforming faith. Practice transforming faith. Yeah, and this is important. Because if you never step out in faith until you only feel warm fuzzies inside, you will never step out in faith. Never. You know, great faith does not mean that that you don't ever feel fear or worry or a little twinge of nervousness about doing what God says. 
No, no, great faith begins with acting on what we know to be true. And so act on what you know is true because it is right. And as you act on faith, God will grow your faith. And, and that's important because, you know, Satan has some of you enslaved to fear, doubt, and anxiety. I mean, you, 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 you struggle to do anything for God. You struggle to have joy in your Christian experience because there is just this cloud of anxiety and worry that hangs over everything that you do. And you need to understand that by God's grace, you can stop being a slave to those things. So see God. Study His Word. Pray for the help of the Spirit. And walk by faith. And as you walk by faith, you'll see God work. You will see God answer prayers. You will see Him be faithful. And God will strengthen your faith. So so folks, in conclusion, great faith transforms how I see God, how I see myself, and how I see my problems. So, So let's all, by the grace of God, pursue that kind of faith. And let's live with that kind of faith. I mean, live this week with a simple trust that God is big. He is bigger than any challenge in your life. And let that faith drive how you live and how you think. And you'll be amazed at the difference it makes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this incredible story. Thank you for this, the testimony, the simple testimony of this centurion. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts to take the Word of God and to plant it deep in our hearts. God, I pray that we would be fashioned into your likeness by the work of your Spirit. And so strengthen us, Lord. God, I pray for maybe some in this room who who their faith is hanging by a thread. They are weak. Oh, God, I pray that your Spirit would encourage their hearts, give grace, And especially give them a grand vision of your glory that transforms how they see all of life. Humble us before you. Give us perspective through our hardships and trials. And God, make us a people of transforming faith that transforms every aspect of how we think, what we love, and how we live. And may we be those people this week. In Jesus' name.